Welcome to Innovation Capital, presented by PatSnap. Here on Innovation Capital, we take a fresh, unfiltered look at some of the biggest topics shaping innovation today. Leave everything you know about innovation at the door, because you have now entered a universe where we turn established ideas on their head and ask the questions that fuel great innovation, growth and scalability. This is Innovation Capital. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to episode 13 of the Innovation Capital podcast presented by PatSnap. In today's episode, our host, Ray Chohan, sits down with Steve Chang. Steve is the vice president and chief IP counsel at RPX Corporation, where he manages RPX's validity challenges. Prior to joining RPX, he worked at various law firms, including Olaf and Barrich, the Mueller office, and others on patent protection, counseling, and litigation matters. Prior to entering law school, Steve worked as a software engineer at Hewlett Packard and Mercury Interactive. During today's episode, Ray and Steve chat about clearing patent risk and patent licensing and innovation. We all hope you enjoy today's episode. And without further ado, let's jump right in. Steve, welcome to Innovation Capital. Really excited to have you on board today. But I'd love to kick off with learning about the story behind the story, how you ended up in the wonderful world of IP and RPX, Steve. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Ray. Uh, thanks for having me. Ha- happy to be here. Um, so the story of the story. <laughs> um, so, you know, prior to prior to joining RPX, I had worked in private practice at a few different law firms. Um, you know, before that, I'm a, I was a, I was a, before law school, I was a software engineer and, you know, very heavily focused on, you know, a lot of the um, latest kind of enterprise software technologies, um, developing J2E platforms and data buses um, for, for enterprise software systems. And, um, you know, while I was an engineer, I always had a kind of an itch to return to, to graduate school and, um, you know, looking at the various options between uh, um, computer science, uh, math and uh, law, you know, it became readily apparent to me that, you know, the, the, the lowest time investment and potentially easiest uh, way to proceed would have, <laughs> would be under law. And, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, joining joining law school a- after having joined law school. I mean, it, it's been a very satisfying journey for me. Um, you know, particularly uh, in in my role at RPX, um, where you know we we are in a somewhat uh, different position from the typical licensor licensee um, uh, postures, um, in that we are effectively facilitating efficient transactions um, in patent licensing agreements. So, um, you know, that that's hopefully a bit of the backstory. <laughs> Brilliant, Steve. And as you speak with RPX, I first came across your organization and brand. I think it would have been back in 2013 at an, I think it was an IPBC event in Asia in Singapore. And I think I was just might have been having a beer at one of the stands and met one of your colleagues or former colleagues and he described RPX and kind of positioned it as the white knight in, in the market. So one of the good guys. And so the business model always kind of stuck in my mind. I remember returning back on the flight and, and spending some time thinking about, wow, that's quite a unique mission and, and vision for an organization. So it will be great to understand the founding story, Steve, of RPX and the underlining thesis of your mission because it's quite a unique organization. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I can, you know, I, I, I joined RPX in 2013, so I wasn't there firsthand for the, for the founding story bit, but you know, I, I can, I can shed a bit of light into it, um, which is, you know, to, to understand the thesis of RPX and the story behind RPX, you really need to understand the problem. And, you know, before RPX, there was a lot of, uh, wasteful expense in patent licensing um, in a variety of areas. So one of them was that it was very expensive to litigate patent cases. Um, uh, there were some studies that showed the cost, the legal costs accrued in getting to dispositive motions or getting to trial or pre-trial 
uh, would be in the millions of dollars. Some numbers were showing two to seven million dollars. Um, even if that's you know captures the first standard deviation, um, there's a lot of volatility um, in patent litigation, and you know um, particularly when cases are being tried before juries, uh, things can go in a lot of different directions. So um, you know one of the th- one of the theses behind RPX is trying to make patent transactions um, less wasteful in the amount of spend that needs to happen uh, by virtue of uh, bulk transacting on licenses. So um, what does that mean? So uh, instead of a patent owner who holds a single, you know, one or more patents um, trying to get persuade company A to take a license and then, you know, going through maybe some litigation and then finally settling for, you know, some sort of undisclosed amount and then doing the same thing with company B who has to hire their own counsel and kind of go through the same song and dance. And similarly with company C, there's a lot of waste that you could see in there because there are fixed costs that each company has to incur in order to understand the case and to formulate their own strategies, tactics, and exit plans to that case. Um, now it's not, you know, in the kind of serial litigation I just described, it's not always the case that, you know, company B can't take advantage of company A's work. You know, oftentimes, you know, they can take advantage of what happened before, you know, in the clearest example where company A just invalidates a subset of the patents. But, um, you know, there's still waste that's generated. So, you know, in that scenario, Although nothing precludes those individual companies, A, B, and C, from having bilateral discussions with that patent holder, you know, RPX offers this additional option of being able to say, look, you know, if we know company A, B, and C are interested, why not just get them licenses in one bulk transaction? And, you know, it can often uh, not just get rid of potential litigation expense, um, but it can also just make licensing much more simple because we kind of have set terms and we know, you know, what kind of resolutions our members tend to seek in terms of the uh, scope of the license language. And so um, that's, that's, that's really the thesis behind RPX is, is, is getting rid of a uh, wasteful spend. Uh, and, and, and obviously that's the core value prop. Have you guys evolved a lot since then? I can, I can see some of your work in the intelligence space. So I'm guessing since 2010-ish, the kind of platform has evolved since then. And what, what does it look like in its current state? Yeah, um, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I can't give you all the tidbits of what it looks like in its current state. Um, but what I can tell you is that, you know, um, we're definitely looking forward to how we can leverage a lot of the data we've collected um, in a variety of in a variety of different ways. So, you know, to to really understand that, you need to um, it helps to understand how RPX kind of happened upon this. Um, you know, going back to the core business, we were striking a lot of deals in the late. Uh, 2000s and early 2010s. And we kind of came to the realization that there's a lot of data that we're missing out on by not kind of collecting it in a structured manner. Um, So this data can relate to um, the entities involved. It can relate to the judges, the law firms. It can relate to um, all sorts of information about the patents, who they're transacting to, when they're transacting relative litigation, how long those cases last, um, all sorts of data points. And so um, what we decided to do is to really start ingesting the data more systematically. And so, you know, that's what we did. We invested fairly heavily um, in um, making sure that we had enough data to inform our own internal decisions. And, uh, you know, as we started doing that, we would often, you know, have conversations with people where, you know, it'd be like, okay, back it up. And then we would have the data points. And so, you know, our members um, naturally started saying, oh, hey, you guys have a lot of interesting data and started asking for it. And so that kind of, uh, created the next evolution in in the in in RPX intelligence and uh, R- RPX uh, research, which is 
you know, how do you um, surface the data in a way that's meaningful to to users? And so, um, so that that's you know what we're doing is we're trying to figure out how can we uh, surface uh, data in a way that turns it into information and is actionable. So, for you know, one you know simple example is you know if I'm a prospective licensee um, facing a patent case from a defensive posture, and I want to be able to figure out, uh, you know, who this who this plaintiff or licensor is. Um, you know, RPX has a lot of data on that, and you know, we're very careful and we're very respectful of people's confidential information. Um, but there's a lot of publicly available data about the law firms that they're using, about how long they spend in litigation, about where they prefer to file their cases, um, and the the backstory there. And so, you know, we kind of weave all of that information into a story that really shows a picture of what the opponent is doing. And so, you know, that information can arm the prospective licensee from coming from a defensive posture with valuable insight on how they want to approach their case. Should I hire, you know, my top flight counsel? Should I hire, you know, um, a more affordable counsel? You know, where, you know, is it worth it to file these motion, these types of motions? Is it, you know, sh should I file my IPR petition earlier or later? Um, there's lots of information. There's lots of kind of um, information that can inform the the ultimate tactics and strategy in a particular case. Brilliant. Yeah, it's interesting. Every business fundamentally does become a data business in time, right? You that's see, right. That's awesome. right. I mean, you, you yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. But, so going back to those formative years where you're doing something quite contrary in the market, where you're, you're going to company A and saying, hey, we could potentially package, apologize for my crude language, things in buckets mm -hmm. and offer them to potential targets to put a, a wrapper around your technology. Was that a big mind shift back in 2011-ish, 2010, approaching industry with that value prop? Did that require a lot of winning hearts and minds? What was it like in those years, 2011 to 2015, to go out to market and say, this is, this is a, a brand new way to position your portfolio and assets and and be proactive and and view in a different lens what, what did that look like in, in those years yeah that that's a great question and and again you know um i joined in 2013 so you know i did see some of the vestiges of the early um kind of psychologies we had to battle um and i wouldn't say they're completely gone but you know there was certainly like any new and i don't <laughs> this word is perhaps overused but disruptive um uh, shift in thinking, um, there are skeptics. And that's for good reason. I mean, you want to kind of approach everything with a healthy dose of skepticism, right? And uh, one of the um, uh, biggest hurdles um, was convincing people that, for example, you know, RPX was not just another patent troll. So um, RPX, uh, very early as part of its mission, um, pledged to never use patents offensively from the standpoint that, you know, RPX has never and will never assert a patent against any company. It's purely from a defensive posture. Um, and, you know, still, you know, even despite kind of undertaking that pledge um, and, you know, there, there were still a lot of skeptics early on um, because patent litigation, like any form of litigation, can be very emotionally draining. And so there are um, people who grew up um, in a career of constantly battling patent cases uh, from a defensive posture, developed a mindset, of course, understandably, that, you know, I have to fight. Right. I have, you know, it's all about fighting. Um, and sometimes that works, um, particularly if, for example, you can, you know, invalidate a patent for, you know, relatively cheap, let's say, you know, under a million bucks. Um, but, you know, not all the time. And there are, 
you know, although some people might never admit it, there are real inventions that manifest themselves in patents and patent claims. I mean, there are some, you know, <laughs> real innovations that make it into patents. Um, and, you know, what happens when your defenses, you know, when people start to whittle away your defenses with legitimate portfolios or credible or even sophisticated portfolios and litigation strategies, um, you know, unfortunately, the fight hard strategy might not work in those scenarios. And, you know, when you're, when you've seen enough cases, you do start to realize that, you know, frankly, you win some and you lose some. And so, you know, part of the psychology that RPX had to overcome in a lot of the kind of what we would call the RPX holdout space was showing people that, look, it really is a problem of economics. And Yes, you know, a fight hard strategy may economically prove viable to you in the long term because you may establish your own, your company's reputation as somebody who's willing to fight hard and thus, you know, deter future, future uh, uh, patent trolls and MPEs. But, you know, if that's what you're going to do, you need to decide that that's what you're going to do, right? You need to make a decision as an organization. It can't just be one person who feels very emotional about it. Right. And once you make that decision, you need to understand what is your exit strategy when you're faced with one of those portfolios that you just you can't win that war of attrition. Right. They just have too many patents. So you invalid you spend you know a good chunk of money to invalidate one and they come at you with five more. You get rid of those five, and guess what? They filed continuations that cost them one tenth of the cost that it cost you to invalidate those five. And so, you know, you, it, it, you know, viewing it from the economic lens is something that's benefited not just RPX in terms of how we can leverage our data um, to, to kind of find where we can thread the needle, uh, but also from the standpoint of convincing people, convincing, uh, really, you know, illustrating to skeptics that, look, you know, there are some problems here where we can offer you a much more attractive economic solution than you can otherwise achieve on your own. And, you know, once people have come to realize that, I think that's where, that's where we can have much more productive partnerships with our members. What does that, in layman term for our audience there, Steve, in the most simplest format, if you can, if possible, what does it look like when you go into company A and you're looking at their portfolio and, and you want to portion it in certain certain buckets? What does that process look like? How long does it take? Who are the stakeholders involved? It would be great to just get a, a kind of a 30,000 foot overview of the actual process. Uh, you're talking about uh, uh, the patent holder, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, um, you yeah. know, Usually, you know, the patent holder comes to RPX um, or they file a case and then, you know, we see an opportunity. And, you know, the way RPX will kind of evaluate the situation is taking into account, um, it, it is just starting by doing its homework. I mean, we, we, we need to know who's involved. We need to know where they came from. We need to know what other cases they filed. We need to know you know, what their kind of litigation character is. We need to know whether we have kind of a productive relationship with respect to um, uh, potential licensing resolutions. Um, we need to know the market for the portfolio that they're, that they're either asserting or, you know, shopping. Um, we need to understand, you know, the, the kind of scope of that market. Um, is, you know, are these patents reading on kind of a fringe feature that's optional or is it core to a standard, right, on the other end of the spectrum? Um, is the patent family open? How many patents are there? Are the claims, um, how good are the claims? What are some of the defensives to the claims? Can we find prior art for them? You know, a lot of homework goes into um, analyzing a particular case. And once we start to formulate our view of that particular case, um, we can enter, you know, we generally enter into, you know, discussions to try to f understand um, whether there's potential for a deal, 
And um, what that involves is being armed with all of that information and approaching each discussion in a way that maximizes the possibility of, you know, you know, getting the plaintiff or getting the licensor to a, to a rational point. And that's not always feasible, um, but, you know, that's what we try to do. Makes sense. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I do recall that 2011 to 2016 period being extraordinarily frothy when it came to NP action in the marketplace. I'm guessing you guys were busier than ever, but it has tapered off 2017 onwards. Correct me if I'm wrong, slightly tapered off. So has that caused you guys to evolve your business model? I mean, really, ultimately, it's a good thing, right? It shows you that the great work that organizations like RPX and maybe some of your adjacent, not indirect competition, but stakeholders are doing in the space, I hope. But things have changed quite considerably on the macros since 2016. So what does the lay of the land look like right now in terms of the busyness in the marketplace, the sentiment? Is is it quite different now, 2021 onwards, in terms of your business model and and, and your value prop? Um, you know, it, it it is and it isn't. Um, and... You know, it is from the standpoint that um, the tenor of patent litigation and licensing has changed significantly, like you said, since um, around, really around 2012, 2014 and onward. And what we saw then was in addition to, you know, the AIA introducing post-grant administrative proceedings whereby a filer, you know, a defendant um, in a lot of cases could just file a a petition to try to invalidate a patent. Um, We also saw the Supreme Court hand down its decision in in, uh, uh, Alice versus CLS Bank, which really broadened, you know, a, a lot of people don't understand the real effect that it had um, and think it was a case about patent eligibility. It, it was. And, you know, to a lot of academics and to folks like examiners at the USPTO, it is. Um, but in terms of patent licensing and litigation, what it really did was to move some of the goalposts and it would turn some of the kind of medium nuisance plus or credible minus type range of cases into just a nuisancey range. Because what used to cost a defendant, you know, let's say in the high six figures or low seven figures to invalidate by getting to claim construction and early dispositive motions, now you could do on a motion to dismiss or a motion for judgment on the pleadings under Rule 12 um, for, let's say, less than 100K. Some cases, maybe less than 50K. In extreme cases, less than 20K. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's really changed the, the economic landscape of patent. The, those, those developments, along with all a lot of the interim developments, have changed the economics of the patent licensing and litigation landscape. Where we're at now is, in the past few years, we've seen somewhat of a push in the opposite direction. Some examples. The federal circuit um, has... Uh, issued a couple of presidential opinions in cases called Berkheimer and Atrix that basically have moved those goalposts a bit back to where they used to be, saying that, look, you know, if the plaintiff is basically making their case correctly, then defendants are going to be much less likely to resolve um, patent eligibility questions on early dispositive motions. Instead, they're going to have to go through claim construction. They're going to have to go through, you know, a variety of different uh, additional hoops, which just means more cost. Um, We've also seen the USPTO pushback. Um, There's a very famous um, uh, uh, line of cases. Um, A lot of people call them the NHK or FINTIV rule, uh, where basically the, the the Patent Trial and Appeal Board is saying we have discretion to deny on the basis of things that are unrelated to the merits of the patent. Now, they have statutory authority that perhaps supports the position, their, that position, but really what it does is it changes, again, the economic landscape of filing a case because in you know, when the AIA first came out, when people were invalidating patents at in you know 80, 90 percent clip, 
um, and you know it was all about the merits of your petition. Now that line of administrative law has developed to a point where, as a filer or defendant, you can't be guaranteed that if you bring the best art, you're going to have a good, solid chance anymore. Right? There are things outside of your control related to district court proceeding and other things. Um, and so, you know, what we're finding now is a strong pushback. Um, against some of the policies that uh, um, that undermined the uh, the economic calculus from the licensor perspective, and now you know we're seeing a lot more cases being filed that are actually you know somewhat more difficult to manage from the standpoint that you don't have as many options as a defendant to get rid of the case on an early dispositive motion or with an IPR kind of automatically anymore. That's not to say that those tactics are completely off the table. It's just to say that, you know, it's, it's, you know, they've been somewhat diluted by a lot of the recent policies. And and the backstory regarding that slight flip-flop back to more of a 2013 posture, Mm -hmm. why has that happened, Steve? Is there a background to that? Because that seems like a step backwards slightly. (laughs) <laughs> it does seem like a step backward. And um, I think, you know, I <laughs> there, the the short answer is that, um, you know, one in, in this analogy gets used a lot, but it's somewhat there, there's somewhat of a pendular effect. So, you know, it's I you get this pendulum effect where the pendulum is constantly swinging between, you know, making it easier for licensors and or making it easier for licensees. And there's a lot of factors that go into that. Um, um, One of the big factors, of course, is how vocal the proponents on either side are, either for their position or against the other side's position. Um, You know, what I've seen um, just kind of personally um, is that since the AIA and since the Supreme Court's Alice decision, um, the kind of patent owner lobby has become much more vocal in a lot of ways um, and, you know, has shown more of a concerted effort. Um, And in fact, since the days of, you know, Patrick, uh, um, of uh, uh, Senator Patrick Leahy and, uh, and uh, um, uh, other, other uh, uh, of our legislative representatives kind of viewing the patent troll or MPE problem as a significant um, uh, inhibitor of American innovation. Uh, what we've seen is that the innovators, or you know, the at least the people who hold patents, whether they be true innovations or not, have taken much more of a concerted effort to kind of raise their hand and say, you know, point to stories. Hey, you know, my patent on this, you know, electrical circuit got invalidated under patent eligibility, like what's going on? Um, you know, there, there's a lot of kind of anecdotes that people were able to choose from and say, wow, you know, maybe the pendulum shifted too far in that direction. That's not to say, you know, on the defense side, you know, there haven't been vocal voices on, you know, very, la- you know, kind of action on that front. Um, but it's been more muted, I would say, relative to the patent owner side. So, um, you know, I think I think that's part of the reason for the shift. Um, but you know, they're obviously, you know, that's barely scratching the surface. <laughs> yeah, um, there's lots of angles and perspectives on that one, but that right. text is really useful. So switching lanes slightly and thinking about more the bright side of things. So the RPX you've built exceptional experience at patent licensing, probably more experience than anyone. So what does great look like when it comes to best practices around patent licensing and methodology if you could share literally one or two simple tips to our audience around just low-hanging fruit best practice Steve. Uh, yeah i mean it, it really differs uh whether you're talking on the license or licensee side um you know i think we can get you know talk all day about best practices for you know either side and depending but I would say in terms of general advice, um, the, the things that we've learned is from whether you're on the license or licensee side or you're in the middle, like with RPX, um, don't act irrationally. Um, you know, you really want to avoid having 
um, deeply emotional conversations with people. Um, litigation, like I said earlier, you know, is is a very emotional practice, and you know it it consumes you in part because you know you're you know oftentimes there's very smart people on the other side looking for every opportunity to blow up your case. Um, and so, you know, you become very invested in it and, you know, it's hard to sometimes take a step back and understand how to view the case from a non-emotional and kind of ec- through the economic lens. Um, emotion, you know, of, uh, having, you know, really bad conversations with folks can make things personal, you know, and you're going to, you know, if you piss off somebody, you're basically, you know, and sometimes you might be doing your company a disfavor. You know, you might be doing your client as an in-house litigator a disfavor. Um, or, you know, if you're very emotional from the license or side, you might be doing your client a disfavor by, you know, making the other side want to make an example out of your patents by, you know, putting them in the ground. So, you know, you should really always have kind of a voice of reason. It helps to set up and structure your teams so that you have somebody who is decoupled from the day to day and can kind of, you know, touch base regularly. And, you know, if you're, you know, if you as the person in the trenches, you know, are are getting, you know, are starting to kind of plow into it too deeply on emotion, you know, having that voice of reason come back and say, hey, you know, is this really the best economic decision for us? So, you know, I think, I think that that kind of structure is, is something that's helpful in, in licensing uh, negotiations. Um, and then, yeah. And the other thing I would say is just, you know, really think about a lot of the new solutions um, that are out there um, as, you know, not just patent law evolves, but the business of patent licensing evolves. You really need to educate yourself on, you know, who's offering what kinds of services and what might be valuable to my company and in me right and so you know understanding like for example like patent pools have evolved pretty significantly since the days of mpeg la um and on the flip side you know with respect to you know aggregating interests of licensees you know companies like rpx there's unified patents there's um lot which are patent pledges i mean a lot of pretty innovative folks are developing these kinds of solutions so you really got to know your market and know when to engage on those kinds of solutions and opportunities and really be able to tap into the power of the collective. Like nowadays, alone wolfing it, you know, from the engineering standpoint, one way of looking at kind of the lone wolf strategy is that you are your own single point of failure, right? But if you kind of join a collective and think about a solution that can benefit many people, um, well, then, you know, that's just another solution, right? There's not a there's not a single point of failure. You kind of have a fail-safe mechanism. Thanks, I think that'll be very useful for the audience. So switching to another part of the marketplace, a more not it's still controversial actually. So sure. IP valuation. I've had many a discussion over a few beers. <laughs> this one, Steve, this one gets the sparks flying in the room. Some people just get angry. Some people get excited. Some people are just neutral, right? Mm-hmm. So RPX, you guys have done a great job. I think, what, $3 billion in transactions over the years, which is great considering the macro context of this messy and confusing space. Where are we, where are we right now? Because I'm still bloody confused, Steve, because we offer a, a patent valuation capability, and then clients like it, and, it, and it's appreciated, and, and, and it's... And it's received pretty good acceptance over the years, but we're still really early on having some methodology really accepted and, 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 and crossing that chasm. On that front, do you think we'll ever get there, Steve? Because <laughs> it seems so messy and subjective and diff- so many different schools of thought. So where are we at? Because that seems like a bit of a holy grail. Yeah. Yeah. Like what's the history and the future of that space? Yeah. If if the question is, will we ever get the magic button that you can click? Yeah. You know, you input a patent number and you click this button and it magically tells you everything that's going to happen with it. The answer is no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at least not based on, you know, even if, you know, our, you know, 
our our technology and you know current machine learning and AI proceeds at an exponential pulse. Um, I, I don't think we're going to get there. And part of the reason for that is because um, patents are not the value of a patent is not just about the four corners of the patent. It's about so many factors, and those factors are constantly changing based on the patent law. Now, if you could have a button that takes as input what where patent policy is going and where patent law is going, maybe. But until you're going to start reading judges' minds and legislators' minds, that's, <laughs> that's not going to happen. And judges and legislators are going to be reactive as well. They're going to be looking at problems that people are bringing to them, and they're going to try be trying to make the best decision based on the information that's available to them. It's an imperfect practice by any stretch of the imagination. And so, you know, there's going to be mistakes. And not only are there going to be mistakes in creating those rules, laws, um, regulations, but just by virtue of the fact that you have people with vested interest in either the value of a patent or upholding their company's right to practice a technology without having a patent asserted against them. You're having a lot of smart people come together and pick holes in all of these words that you're saying forms the basis of your opinion or your law. So, you know, you can't draft perfect laws, you can't write perfect cases, and you can't predict where patent policy is going. So that's why the answer is no. Now, can we get to a place where we can give people better tools? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, as folks probably, you know, happy to share this, you know, RPX, we are happy PatSnap clients. And, you know, we, you know, we definitely appreciate the value in being able to bring together a lot of different data points to inform our decisions. And so, um, uh, you know, giving, like I said earlier in, in, in the stream, you know, the more tools and the more data points you can give to people about not just the patents themselves and mining all of the wondrous, you know, deep, rich data that the patent brings with it, but looking at who's involved, frequency of transaction, what are the things that are happening in this technology space, what products and services the patent can be asserted against, um, where that industry is going, the judges who are involved, past licensing, um, and taking into account all of that information is really something that can help people better make their decisions, right? It's definitely, I mean, it's a journey, isn't it? While we were on that journey, I think we've definitely come a long way in the last three years. Yeah. The sentiment we're seeing in the market and also the great work you and your team do. Mm -hmm. So we're on that role. But so switching lanes, this is another one which drives me nuts. And it's still an open debate. And I'd love to get your professional opinion. So IP in the boardroom, the C-level intrinsically getting, getting it, getting everyone involved, Everyone having skin in the game, maybe one day turning the IP department into a revenue center. God hoping you hear some of that nowadays as well with some of the technological developments around blockchain and NFTs. We'll come to that shortly. But again, this headline you've probably seen so many times. You see it every year. Obviously, intangible assets uh, as a composition of the S&P 500, it's 90%. In 2021, obviously, that's a blend of patterns, brand value, customer data, software. It's a blended piece. But focusing on patterns, do you think we, we're moving quickly enough where the board, C-level execs deeply understand that asset class and the value of it in terms of impact on, on share price, growth of a business? You think we're winning hearts and minds at the sea level and, and different market facing departments, Steve? Where are we are? Where are we in terms of that journey? <laughs> wow, that's a <laughs> that, that's a that's a big question. I mean, I think um, I think on the whole, um, IP is an asset class, and in particularly patents for technology-based companies, um, are are real are appreciating the um, greater value that patents can can bring. Um, you know, and obviously, you know, in some 
historically patent entrenched fields like um, uh, the pharmaceutical industry, you're not going to have like pharmaceutical startups or, you know, biomedical uh, startups that don't understand the value of patents. That That's, that's a given. Um, but there are some softer um, tech um, or, you know, information tech based companies where, you know, the startup market is highly saturated and as those companies start to develop from nascency into, um, you know, adolescence, yes, I mean, I think, you know, we are starting to see more C-suites appreciate the value of investing additional dollars in, in their patents. It's born out of a couple of things. You know, one of the things is when they first get sued by a patent troll um, or by one of their competitors, it, you know, that immediately lights a fire and says, why don't we have more patents? Um, now, alternatively, there are, you know, lots of folks who, you know, lots of younger companies that recognize that earlier on. And as they move into adolescence, they already have fairly sizable patent portfolios. And we've seen plenty of examples of that. And um, in those cases, um, they're much better equipped um, to fend off, uh, you know, any other kind of commercial um, you know, hostile commercial transactions by their competitors. So, um, you know, I, I, I think we are starting to see it um, improving, and, uh, starting to see people appreciate the value of IP and, and more specifically patents as an asset class. Um, and, you know, another thing that's, that I would say is helping that is the rise of um, third-party litigation funders. Um, you know, which during the COVID uh, uh, pandemic has really started to burgeon. And, you know, traditionally, IP and patent licensing is a relatively recession-proof asset class. You, 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 everything is done digitally, electronically, you know, papers are filed electronically in court, um, you know, you, you can appear by hearings over Zoom, um, you know, so you know, it's not like, for example, a restaurant business where if you tell people they can't go outside, you know, they're not going to be able to do it. Um, you know, so a lot of um, uh, well-capitalized uh, uh, funds have started to recognize that, well, you know, if we can develop our expertise in calling winners for certain patent portfolios and cases, then perhaps we can, you know, generate some revenue from, from this asset class. And so, you know, really what that's meant is in the past year, we're seeing a lot more cases that are brought that are much better capitalized than the plaintiffs otherwise would have been. And, um, sure, you know, having more money is always nice, but what does that really mean? It really just means uh, a, a few things. So first of all, you have to pay somebody else, which isn't a plus for you if you're, you know, the patent holder, but it does give you um, the ability to take a case further, um, to pay counsel a bit more to explore additional exits. Um, and it also uh, perhaps gives you the ability to um, pick out assets in the portfolio that are going to be perhaps more resistant to an Alice challenge. Maybe, you know, if the litigation funder knows what they're doing, that's not to say it changes the, um, it changes the true eligibility of any particular patent. But if you have 50 patents and you're trying to, and you don't have the expertise of figuring out, you know, which ones should I assert first and against whom, you know, perhaps somebody with who's developed that expertise can bring, can bring that to the table and help you. And thus, you know, potentially generate more licensing revenue early on. That's the idea behind it anyway. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, this one we could probably talk for the whole evening about because it, it's something which is front of mind for our team, uh, mm -hmm. our customers, especially when we're speaking to passionate IP leaders who are trying to beat the drum and and win hearts and minds across different departments. Some right. industries like life sciences are more fertile and it's, it's table stakes. Then you could go to the food and beverage industry where it's a mixed bag. So, so Steve, that, that's really useful in terms of the macros. So switching lanes completely. So this is a, an interesting one we're looking at right now, but it's moving darn quick. So obviously this year, all over mainstream news, actually, in fact, all over CNBC, we've seen the price action in Bitcoin, digital assets, 
all those kind of fun headlines. But we are seeing some interesting developments with some big names, big capital behind them around NFTs, non-fungible tokens, which in essence, by some standards, by some very strong business leaders worldwide, are saying will completely revolutionize IP <laughs> from a monetization standpoint. It, it right. completely flips the entire model on its head. And fundamentally, if you look at it, maybe long tail, this is just the, the blue sky and, and fun part of our conversation in terms of wild thinking. Yeah. <laughs> actually, there's no need for a patent system because if you've got this programmable intellectual property, which where you can pre-program, pre-secure, secure on the blockchain, royalties, payments, protection, covenants, what's the need of a patent, right? So are you guys looking at that? Because it's moving really fast. Originally starting with obviously collectibles, but there's already folks looking at a marketplace around NFT and patents. There's a, there's a marketplace called OpenSea. And I think a patent's being placed on that marketplace. So I was curious, is this something you guys are observing or do you just have a, a macro general view on, on that technological shift? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll say my two cents on it, um, and then I'll probably turn it back on you, Ray, because you, you are much probably more familiar with me than. <laughs> uh, um, so, so yes, I mean, I think, I think what you're referring to um, is uh, an organization called IPW, which was founded by Eric Spangenberg, who ran one of the most notorious uh, MPEs back in the day. Um, uh, IP, this organization, IPW, has uh, released um, uh, effectively um, a patent marketplace that relies on people putting their uh, agreements on the blockchain. Um, they've partnered with IBM because, of course, I mean, IBM has, I think, the most patents in the blockchain space in, out of any U.S. company. Um, and, um, you know, I think my two cents on the potential for it is that there's a lot of questions um, that... Um, they'll need to get through. Um, there's a lot of smart people at IBM, so you know I wouldn't <laughs> I, I wouldn't put it past them. But you know, you know, fundamentally, you know, one of the issues with putting patents on a blockchain is if you're starting with the premise that you know we want to be able to track rights, licenses, encumbrances, and how they flow through a patent and through different hands, um, that's something that's going to be hard to do without incentivizing um, the rights um, conveyor or the rights conveyee to do it, right? Um, patent transactions are historically a very opaque process. And the reason for that is because um, not just the lack of you know, um, it, it, it's effectively a commercial transaction between two private properties and giving away the kind of secret sauce or the amount of money, amount of licensing that a certain asset has trans, has generated um, potentially undermines future transactions, both from the licensor and the licensee side. You know, it can undermine or it can help, right? But, you know, the, the idea is that you want to choose when you're going to be using that information. You don't want everybody else to get a free ride on that information, right? And so, you know, that that's one of the challenges that people are going to have to overcome in creating a patent marketplace where you're putting rights conveyances on the blockchain. Um, another one is going to be security and how, you know, non-fungible tokens are actually regulated because you know as anybody who's been looking at any news article about it it's it's just a wild west mm -hmm. and you know it i mean can you can you imagine um that if you're trying to rely i mean ultimately you do have the agreement but you know if if you're saying that look you know people can actually rely on the blockchain on this distributed ledger blockchain to know what rights who you know who has who has and when the problem with that is 
that can lead to potentially disastrous results if that ever gets hacked or if that ever gets manipulated, um, you know, or if it's regulated in a way that, you know, you have to disclose it to people you don't might not want to disclose it to. And so, um, you know, then the question becomes, well, if you always have the backup of the agreement, then, you know, then what's the purpose of putting something on the blockchain? Like, what's the incentive? And and that brings us back to that question. So, you know, I think, I think there are quite a few, I mean, we're just hardly scratching the surface again, but, you know, there, there are quite a few challenges that I think these folks, and, and they're very smart, um, but they, they will have to work through and, you know, try to figure out, you know, what incentivizes people to, you know, what would incentivize licensors and licensees to actually, you know, get us to a point where we have some kind of critical mass. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we're all literally, we're not even in the first innings of this paradigm. I mean, that's right, yeah. Web yeah. 3.0, internet of value. Oh, I, yeah. I am bullish. I am long on Web 3.0 happening. Good. It's evolution of the internet. We went from okay. information to value. And what's happening right now is probably the real promise of the internet. So I'm I'm always optimistic on that. But yeah, it's Wild West. So many unanswered questions. Mm-hmm. To be frank with you, I think no one really knows, but everyone is exploring and trying one thing I'm still on the learning curve, Steve, but one thing we are observing is you mentioned incentive structure from what we're observing, but we're still humbly learning right now. You can pre-program uh, the holder's incentive structure into an NFT in advance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's already baked in off the bat. Whatever you want as the holder, you can pre-program in. So be it an ex royalty or something in perpetuity, whatever it may be, is right. baked into the code and code is law. But but it's interesting, obviously, so many mm-hmm. hurdles, you've got to win hearts and minds, regulatory hurdles, but it, it's definitely an interesting space. So this segues into another holy grail, which I've seen come and go, and you guys can definitely comment on it because you guys do some brilliant work in this space through your methodology. The, the marketplace holy grail, the Amazon of innovation, right? I've seen a bunch come and go. You have obviously Ocean Tomo who have tried different things with IPXI back in the day. Do you think that's ever going to happen, Steve? I know it's a broad question, but just next four or five years, do you think we're going to have some form of innovation marketplace, be it verticalized licenses? Do you think we're going to get there one day? Um. Uh, <laughs> Maybe. Um, I mean, I think the innovation that's happening right now with respect to the blockchain technology, I mean, holds some potential. Um, But, uh, um, you know, it, I I don't think that's going to be happening in the near future. Um, And in part because, you know, patent litigation and licensing itself is somewhat of a wild west um because and part of the reason for that is because you get these unicorn stories um that get widely publicized which for example is like you know the billion dollar trial uh, verdicts um or you know um a defendant going on a war path and invalidating you know umpteen patents um you know you get these outliers that kind of cause everybody to potentially stray away from uh, a, a global, you know, a, a, mar- a true marketplace, so to speak. You know, they want to, they want to always do it their own way, and which is fine because you know, oftentimes people who do that, you know, can be very successful. And so, um, you know, I think in general, a global marketplace, there, there are so many challenges to enumerate and overcome. Um, I think that's the holy grail. I think that's what everybody you know, ultimately um, thinks, yeah, you know, there's some advantage to that. Um, But at the end of the day, you know, (laughs) very few people want to rely on a single marketplace and a single, single, uh, uh, a single entity controlling that. If it does happen first, where do you think the first niche will be? Being a, I don't know if you're a betting man, but just broadly, Uh, (laughs) what do you think? I don't. Uh, geez. Um, if you're right, 
bears on me when we meet. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I would say right now, you know, the, the 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 global patent marketplace based on blockchain technology might have the most potential. Um, but you know, having said that, and having talked about you know uh, just a subset of the challenges that that initiative has, um, it's uh, <laughs> you can see we're quite a ways away from it. Um, so. Yeah, <laughs> Steve, I've really enjoyed the exchange with you today. So a bit of fun. This is our quick fire round. Sure. Book that you most recommend or often most gift or top two books? Oh, um, geez. Uh, I would say um, uh, Frank Herbert's Dune is a must read. I reread that every few every few months. I mean, it's just there's so much embedded in there and it's so deep and awesome. Um uh and let's see um i mean i've been reading some recent books that i haven't liked too much um i, I don't want to there's a there's a um uh well, I, I guess a light-hearted one is a uh, graham simpson simpson i think it is there's no p uh wrote a series uh about uh uh this um kind of uh, uh, autistic uh, genius um, who struggles with romantic life and being a dad. Um, and, you know, as, as a father myself, you know, I can appreciate a lot of the <laughs> uh, travails he, he goes through. It's called, a, I think one of the books is uh, The Rosie Project. Um, and then there's um, The Rosie Effect and The Rosie Result um, that are kind of a lighthearted and fun read. Sure. And digital assets, crypto, Bitcoin, new monetary system, believer or non-believer? Um, skeptic believer. Um, I, I have no doubt that there's a lot of potential there, um, provided you know people can get on the same page and overcome a lot of the challenges there. Um, I think what people often underestimate is, you know, once you digitize something, the the security ramifications and how difficult it is to um, unravel those. Um, there's a lot more people smarter than us in the security field who are looking at these problems, but you know, you still occasionally see even more creative people go out and you know create dumps of you know flaws on certain kinds of um, technologies, and so you know, and part of the thing that we're learning at least in the US with respect to cyber structure uh, uh cyber uh cyber security infrastructure is that you know you don't know what's there you know something could be lurking and it could just be a time bomb or several time bombs um lurking in your chain and you just have no idea and so you know a good piece of advice for anybody who's looking to invest is you know don't invest your life savings in it um uh, and final one, this is a, a very like mega blue sky one. Extra trust your life, believer or non-believer, and why? Yeah, absolute believer. Uh the statistics uh bear it out. Um, you know, there are four hundred billion stars by modest estimates in just the Milky Way alone. Um in our visible universe we have <laughs> so many galaxies many of which dwarf the milky way um we've also been discovering that there are so many planets that are in the habitable habitable zones of their uh solar systems so you know for us to be the only life form is actually you know just doesn't seem feasible um, what's more likely feasible is that, you know, we are being watched in some way or, you know, we are maybe an ant farm experiment for another alien civilization. So I'll just put it out there and, you know, let people um, uh, come, you know, let people's imaginations fly. Brilliant. Nice one, Steve. I really enjoyed the conversation today. Hopefully we can catch up for maybe a face to face beer part two one day when we can all fly. But you stay safe, buddy. And it was great to connect. Likewise, Ray. Thanks for the time. And there you have it for today's episode, everyone. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast with Steve and Ray. Firstly, I want to thank Steve for taking time out of his extremely busy schedule and sharing his ideas and wisdom with us here on today's podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, hit that subscribe button, hit that like button, share this out with a colleague or friend who you feel like would be truly impacted from today's episode. And for those of you listening, 
Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and for getting through the entire episode, we want to provide you with something today. If you want to spark an impactful discussion around innovation within your organization, then you can go ahead and download your free copy of our free ebook, The Connected Innovation Intelligence Blueprint. In this ebook, we explore what connected innovation intelligence is and how the world's top disruptors are using it to grow, compete, and win in a hyper competitive world. And to get your free copy today, all you have to do is go to patsnap.com forward slash blueprint. Again, that is patsnap.com forward slash blueprint. Thank you again for listening. We can't wait to be back with another episode. Until then, continue to embrace your childlike wonder and stay curious.
And there you have it for today's interview with George Romanik, everyone. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I want to first of all thank George for taking time out of his schedule and sharing his amazing wisdom with us today. And also thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed it, you went through the whole episode, we want to give you something for doing so. If you're wanting to spark an impactful discussion around innovation within your organization, then we have just the thing for you. You can download your copy of our free ebook, The Connected Innovation Intelligence Blueprint. In this report, we explore what connected innovation intelligence is and how the world's top disruptors are using it to grow, compete, and win in a hyper competitive world. And to download this free copy of this amazing ebook, all you have to do is go to patsnap.com forward slash blueprint to get your copy today. Again, that is patsnap.com forward slash blueprint. If you enjoyed today's episode, also hit that subscribe button, leave a rating and review. If you want to see a guest on here or have a guest recommendation, feel free to write in. We'd be happy to hear it. We will be back with another episode soon. Until then, continue to embrace your childlike wonder and stay curious.